We will see rapid disruptive change between now and 2030. In fact, we'll look back from 2030 on 2020 and marvel how much has changed in just 10 years. Would you agree with that? Agreed, 100%. No question. <laughs> Agreed, definitely. This is the 2020 to 2030 is critical for the energy transition change, 100%. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm going to be discussing the International Energy Agency's 2020 Renewable Energy Study, released tomorrow, that's Tuesday, November 17th, with lead author Hemi Bahar, who is based in Paris. He's the IEA Senior Analyst for Renewable Energy Markets and Policies. Welcome to Energy Talks, Hemi. Thank you very much for hosting me. Now, let's start with an overview of your study, please. Of course. So the study looks at the forecast uh, for renewables in three sectors, so electricity, heat, and transport, all of them equally important. And the main result of the forecast shows us a very positive development on electricity, renewables and electricity, uh, and how they deal with the crisis. So we basically found that with particular data um, that uh, renewables in electricity are resilient, almost immune uh, to the crisis uh, compared to other fuels. This is an opposite trend uh, because while renewables in electricity generation is expected to increase by 7%, uh, all other fuels are expected to decline uh, in 2020. So uh, it shows initial uh, resilience. The second point is that not only that renewable generation will grow, we also look at new added capacity to the system, so new plants. We also found out that that also is going to increase, uh, uh, so which means that the expansion rate of renewables will continue to increase. Uh, we expect about 200 gigawatts to be installed uh, this year. Uh, of, of renewable plants, including all renewables. And uh, this is an incredible development because this accounts for about 90% uh, of the increase in global electricity capacity, uh, which is making up a lot of the share, uh, which is quite important and proves the resilience. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had American economist Tony Siba uh, on the podcast. And he had put out a study in which he forecast that by 2030, the combination of wind, solar, and battery storage would drive the price of electricity so low that renewables would be adopted much faster than we expect. Is your study consistent with that conclusion? So, uh, very good point. We expect uh, solar PV uh, capacity uh, continue to increase uh, over time uh, in the coming uh, five years. Uh, we also do two cases, main case and accelerated case. And it looks at the challenges that renewables face today country by country in the main case, and then looks at how those challenges are met, if they are met, uh, uh, how this the world may look like. So in our accelerated case, uh, uh, we see both wind and solar capacity to increase. Uh, for solar PV, we expect in both cases to grow, uh, as, uh, as you indicate. However, we need to differentiate wind and solar here a little bit. Uh, I think it's an important point why solar is much more in an advantageous than wind. Uh, 
because globally wind plants, especially onshore wind plants, uh, I'm sure this is a problem in Canada as well, they are facing social acceptance issues because of their height, uh, because of how they are located. Uh, this is not all, this is true everywhere in the world. And that's why this affects uh, delays in the construction, problems in the permitting and so on and so forth. So, but solar is the opposite side where there is no height, uh, there is no uh, basically size problem because you can install an off-grid in a mining facility in Canada, which is completely out of the grid, very small scale, but you can also include a 300, 400 megawatt utility scale project. So in between those, you attract incredible amount of investors, uh, an incredible amount of uh, sources of investment. That's why solar PV is usually the more advantage and our numbers show that solar PV will almost grow double the size of wind. Uh, because uh, of this um, facility uh, and despite the fact that it's not maybe cheapest option in many countries but investors can build solar PV plants much faster than wind plants today. Uh, I was reading a Wood McKenzie study on solar PV costs between now and 2030 and they were forecasting still a fairly significant drop in costs over the next decade. Is that consistent with what you found? Yes, uh, very consistent. Uh, we see that uh, uh, solar PV costs in the next five years to decline by a quarter again, uh, and wind costs by about 10 to 15%. Obviously, continuous cost declines uh, will make uh, wind and solar more and more competitive. And already today, if you want to build a new electricity plant in the world, in significant majority of the countries, you will see that wind and solar are cheaper. So that's the first statement. Second statement is that in more and more countries, it is becoming comparable to existing cost of fossil fuel generation. Uh, so which means that if you have costs about $30 per US dollars per solar PV generation or wind generation, which we see these numbers around in the new contracts, this is equal to operating cost of coal plants in some countries. So we are entering into a new era, I will say, where not only for new generation renewables are cheaper, but it slowly it will be comparable and lower than existing generation, then you see a completely different, uh, different world, obviously. Now, Siba's uh, argument is that um, the cost of renewables, particularly solar, combined with battery storage, which then makes it competitive with coal in terms of dispatchable power, or potentially anyway, is that uh, are we seeing that combination of wind and solar with batteries being competitive with existing generation now, or is that something we'll see in five years or 10 years? Combined with batteries now, that's difficult to argue because with today's costs, uh, but definitely if you take into account the historic development of battery cost reduction and solar PV cost reduction, Obviously, in the next 10 years, I don't know exactly when and how, uh, you will very well see uh, in some countries this combination is cheaper than 
than, than, uh, than fossil fuel alternatives. But I cannot give you an exact country and number because we don't have these in the, in the report yet. Does your analysis take into account the recent announcements by Tesla, for instance? Elon Musk had a battery day a month or two ago, talked about some of the engineering advances, such as dry coating of anodes, uh, that would drive down the cost and drive up the energy density of batteries, of lithium ion batteries. And I think he was talking, you know, 2024, we'd see $57 a kilowatt hour, which is a tremendous uh, decline. Uh, have you taken those kind of calculations into account in your analysis? First of all, we do not forecast batteries in this report. So that's the first point to make. Uh, however, uh, batteries will play more and more role and we do uh, basically do projections for batteries in the long term in, in other publications we have, such as World Energy Outlook. So, but uh, that's why we are, the forecast in this case looks at just renewables. And in some cases, increasingly, they will be combined with batteries, not only at the utility scale, but also at the residential scale behind the meter in multiple countries. So. We follow this plan, but overall, if you look at the overall renewables growth or wind and solar growth in the next five years, uh, batteries will be a small share of this because most of the plants in the world will be driven by without battery storage facilities, including in the United States and Canada, uh, because currently uh, battery cost does not allow today and in the next two, three years, this kind of a big competitive advantage. Batteries are growing mostly in places where there are subsidies, uh, such as Korea, such as Japan, such as some parts of the United States. So where you have also Australia, you have investment subsidies given to batteries. They grow there very fast. Currently though, without these subsidies, the growth of the batteries is currently quite limited, I will say. Uh, but it will come definitely in the next uh, five years. The, we know that um, countries around the world are adopting ever stricter climate policies, including uh, carbon pricing. And what role does climate pricing in particular, uh, sorry, climate policy in particular climate pricing, uh, climate carbon pricing, what role does that play in the adoption of wind and solar? So currently, the, we looked at the, every single policy that drives the wind and solar growth in the next five years in our forecast. We categorized the forecast by policy. And obviously with the existing carbon pricing schemes, uh, uh, the impact is very limited. Why either the price is too low or there are other policies that stimulate renewables much faster, such as auction schemes, for instance, uh, those that were implemented in Quebec at the time and in Ontario, uh, similar ones that those auctions that uh, you open a competitive bid and you accept bids. We expect that about 40 to 40% 40 of the wind and solar growth will come from these auction schemes, which are not relevant uh, to the carbon prices because it's a separate policy. And we expect an increasing number of uh, uh, wind and solar plants growing outside of common policy schemes, such as feed-in tariffs, auctions. So we call them corporate PPAs, which means, uh, which means that 
companies who are willing to buy renewable power and sign bilateral contracts. So this is an increasing trend that we will see. But also uh, on top of that, we will see merchant plans, which are going uh, basically uh, in the in the face of the uh, just one second. Yeah. in the face of the merchant plans running on the wholesale electricity markets, and also on top of that, we will see a combination of those sources where companies are bidding into an auction some part of their output, going to the spot market to raise other output and sign bilateral contracts. So. This is very important to highlight in my opinion. Our analysis shows that in the next five years, 15 to 20% of wind and solar will be outside of common policy schemes, either these bilateral contracts, which shows the maturity of the industry where the developers will like to take more risks, not to rely on policies. And this is obviously a game changer in the renewable world because it used to be only reliant on policies, but we expect more and more companies to be uh, invest in renewables outside of these common policy schemes, which is a good deal. One of the areas I've been reporting upon and, and researching recently is electricity market reform. And that would seem to be consistent with the point that you're making here. Um, we are seeing uh, jurisdictions like Alberta in Canada, for instance, that has done pretty good work around that and that will aid the adoption of uh, wind and solar. And we've seen, we're seeing the same thing in the US. Um, what do, what's the electricity market situation outside of North America and are electricity markets being reformed and changed in response to the rapid adoption of renewables? This is a very, very good question, and you're pointing to a very important issue. The second largest or third largest challenge that renewables will face in the next five years is grid integration. And this is not a technical issue only. It's also about how the market designs enable wind and solar to operate in a better way, in an optimized way to the system. And uh, you cited very good examples around the, in, the, in North America. Alberta did a very good job for over the last years by reducing the, the time of the, in the spot market, which helps a lot for renewables. The same thing happened in ARCOT. It's 15 minute intervals that the market is running. In Europe, uh, we are seeing these kind of developments very fast, but Europe is, is a bit lucky because all the countries are interconnected and the markets are single, so the products are completely aligned in especially balancing uh, markets uh, products, so which is very good. Where this is happening in a slower extent, which we will see in the next five years, big reforms are happening in Japan, very important, in Korea, very important, in China, started in some provinces, which will be done at a national scale, hopefully in the coming five years. Uh, also in India, there are very small spot markets in the examples that I give, but we are going towards this direction to reflect in the markets value of the wind and solar. We are not talking about any more levelized cost of energy. The comparison that I gave to you in your first question, they are cheaper or not. Actually, this will become irrelevant in the coming years because we need to look at the value that brings into the system which is a different calculation. And in order to extract this value, just to give you a very good example, if you have in the middle of the day, 
uh, a huge solar energy coming in, the value of that energy declines because if there's too much of it. Uh, so we need to find products in the spot market, in the wholesale market that reflects this real value. And this is a million dollar question in the world. So there are very good examples as you described to enable them to operate better. But the examples of the reflecting the real value, also the value of the storage is a million dollar question right now that everybody's trying to find out because electricity markets are not designed that way. They are designed on a marginal cost basis rather than this kind of a renewable zero marginal cost basis. I think we will see a lot of innovations on the regulation and market design in the coming years. One of the questions I'm very curious about, and I, I confess that is not showing up in my reporting, so I don't have even a, an informed opinion, and that is the, how countries whose economies are still developing, and maybe Africa would be an example, uh, whether they will do with electricity what they did with telecommunications. So instead of building this complex infrastructure from the ground up or expanding what they have, it, they'll simply go into microgrids and virtual power plants and all sorts of other options that are lower cost because the technology enables it. What's your take on that? This is a very uh, good question. And uh, uh, we called this uh, in a question a few years ago, whether Africa will leapfrog uh, on, this, uh, on this. And it is, we see an incredible innovation in Africa in terms of uh, first to replace or combine diesel generation with solar PV and batteries. So this is no brainer. There's no question about cost here. So the day that you will install solar PV and combine it with diesel generation, you start saving money from diesel, no question. And the return rate of this is two to three years in Africa right now. It's quite uh, simple. So whether you will be able to find the money to invest in new solar PV plant, that's the biggest question. So that's a separate discussion. That's the first thing that, that is happening. So when there is availability of funds in Africa, we see diesel combined with solar PV in, the, in, in hospitals, in public buildings, and so on and so forth in order to do that. That's the first part. Second part, there is a huge business innovation on the off-grid sector where there is no grid available. And the grid will probably not come to those areas. In those areas, there is an incredible innovation of pay-as-you-go systems where uh, you basically uh, don't pay anything for the investment and you pay uh, while you use it. So this is a pure business innovation uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is happening, so which is, which is very, very good. The third one is industries, uh, where the mining sector in Africa, for instance, they already are using solar PV uh, and combined with diesel, uh, which is an important uh, development. So the leapfrogging is happening on the off-grid side, but not only that, it's also happening on the normal utility scale side. So Africa is building more wind and solar than anything that you can imagine, relative terms, obviously. Still, we are talking about very small numbers, but if you look at what they built, they mostly build renewables, uh, and uh, uh, which is good. But we need to talk about the challenges, obviously. Financing remains an important challenge. And the planning of the grid uh, is, uh, is basically an extremely important uh, uh, factor because 
Sometimes the investors will like to build a renewable microgrid, but they do not know whether the grid will come there in two, three years, then their investment will go sunk, obviously, right? So we need to uh, obviously take that into account. These are the regulatory problems at the end. Well, I'd like to expand on that issue just a little uh, a bit, Amy. Uh, on the, when new technologies are adopted, they, we use the technology, uh, the S-curve, to explain how they get adopted over time. And one of the things we know is that as technologies drop in price and as they uh, get a bigger and bigger market share, there are always obstacles to adoption that are non-cost related. And you mentioned some of them, some of their, their policies or uh, you know, existing infrastructure, sunk costs. I mean, there's all sorts of, of these kinds of barriers to adoption that have to be overcome. In your opinion, sort of looking at the global perspective, what might be, say, the top three barriers to adoption of more and more renewables? So if we look at the non-cost barriers, I will say the first and foremost, the most important challenge is policy uncertainty. We still see a lot of countries uh, providing not, not providing a clear policy guideline clear regulatory guideline for renewables, for most wind and solar. So that is the first problem. The second one is the permitting and social acceptance. So how these permitting structures are established, and this is especially a big challenge for wind projects, especially onshore wind projects. And um, obviously uh, the cost is not an issue anymore, but how we manage as a society uh, the acceptance of these plants. And we cannot simply think about wind plants as uh, you can just not simply build them whatever you want. You need a structure for that. And you need to inform the society and involve them in the decision-making process. This is a big challenge uh, that we see that is, that is uh, everywhere now, including in emerging countries, by the way. So you see wind plants being delayed for years and years because of this because developers and government did not take that into account, that it's important to involve the, so the community in advance of this. Uh, Canada actually has very good examples of this, involving the, the communities um, uh, in the beginning of the project level. This is the second largest one. The third one is availability of financing. This is not cost-related still. I'm telling you, it may sound cost-related, but how the financing uh, especially emerging markets, switch from investing uh, in something else to renewables is a big question mark, is a big still a challenge. And uh, the question that we are working at the IEA, how we can promote and show that finance community that this is actually uh, an area that investment should go uh, for the climate change and further reasons. I think most of us will remember uh, in January, uh, BlackRock Inc.'s uh, Larry Fink, CEO of the largest asset management company in the world, sent out a letter to CEOs and said that uh, from here on out, well, already climate uh, risk is driving the allocation of capital. And it would seem like that that trend would, be, would favor wind and solar and renewables. And do you think then that the larger trends that Fink was talking about uh, will help to overcome some of these issues that you mentioned on the finance side? 
I think we are at the crossroads and uh, the world is going as of this year more towards the renewable side. The example that you gave is very important about the corporates wanting to invest more on renewables. But over the last, I will say three to four months, we saw a very large number of countries, sorry, not very large number, a very large energy consumer countries announcing net zero targets. So these include China, Japan, Korea. Uh, we are talking, and European Union, if you add those uh, four together, uh, we are talking about a very important chunk of energy demand globally. This gives the policy momentum. So we know where these countries would like to go. And on top of this, you have uh, obviously a new administration uh, uh, views, especially proposed views, are also going towards that direction. We do not know obviously how they will implement it, whether, so those are uncertainties, but still if you look at the direction of policy proposal of the new admin US administration, you see that they will go towards that direction too. So if you add United States on top of this, you have basically the largest consumers in the pot of net zero, which means the crossroads that I described is going slowly towards renewables. And I think this will affect the financing community. And also over the last six months, we saw several banks announcing that they will stop financing uh, coal uh, in the coming, uh, in their portfolio, new coal, I will say. And this is also an important decision. And already World Bank two years ago said that unless it is a critical for energy access or on a basis that they will assess, uh, they will not invest in finance coal plants in the world, so, which is a very important decision as well. I'd like to get your response to some of the work that I've done. Uh, I've written a, a document called the Energy Declaration, which is a, I call it the optimistic and moderate uh, vision for Canada's energy future, but it applies outside of Canada. And my basic hypothesis, uh, Amy, is that the future is electric, that somewhere down the road, mid 21st century or later, depending if you're like Vaclav Smeal or not, uh, we will, the, the, the global economy, the primary energy will be electricity. What isn't electric will be hydrogen, biofuels, something like that. And that renewables really will, the electricity provided by renewables will gradually supplant oil, gas, and coal. And the question now really is not if it will happen, the question is when it will happen. So just what's your general response to my argument? Uh, so in last year, we had a slide that we put together and uh, the title of that slide was the future is electric. <laughs> so, so it was uh, uh, totally in line uh, with your, uh, I guess your, your, uh, your previous uh, reporting. Uh, and uh, today, uh, as in 2019, uh, only 20% of uh, uh, global uh, energy consumption was from electricity. The rest was uh, uh, heat processes from industry and buildings or heat use, and the rest is, is transport. So when you look at the energy system, obviously there are easy to electrify sector, and there are difficult to electrify sectors. 
And, uh, but the time frame that you gave, uh, I will agree with you that there will be a lot of electrification happening. Uh, first of all, industrial processes, those that can be electrified uh, uh, will be electrified soon, especially with those assets. Direct use of fossil fuel assets are getting aged in many countries, so they need to be replaced anyways. So uh, the investors will ask the question whether they should replace with electric or direct use. So I think efficiency that electricity provides is quite important uh, to those processes in, in several cases. So I think those will be done. Road transport definitely will be electrified. I mean, this is a no brainer already today that we see that it will happen. The question is that what are the, those difficult to electrify? Air transport, aviation, especially long haul aviation, where obviously hydrogen is being tested and can be used, but still question mark, these are difficult uh, places to decarbonize. And also where you cannot electrify, some of the very energy intensive sectors where these can be used, we think that waste, uh, uh, renewable waste, uh, can be used in an extensively in, in some of these sectors, especially the cement sector. Uh, we propose that the potential is amazing uh, to use waste in cement. Uh, and, uh, but there will be a lot of different choices, but I will agree with your argument in the longer term that uh, most of the things will be electrified. Those are not hydrogen, will can be the vehicle. That, that, uh, that is energy vehicle that will be done. Obviously, hydrogen produced from renewables, so green hydrogen. Amy, um, just final question now, and, I, and again, this is responding to something that is a part of my hypothesis, uh, and that is that the energy transition that, you know, basically the shift for, to electricity from fossil fuels, that it in fact, is driven now primarily by technology change. And then there's a, especially those who favor, you know, are still tied into the old hydrocarbon industry who argue that it's all subsidized and driven by policy, it is not. That might've been true for the first two, three decades of the transition because uh, when you have a pump that you uh, want to get going, you have to prime it. And so the priming, it took place over two or three decades, but the priming is, mostly done. Now, the, ener the new energy technologies are lower cost. They have all sorts of uh, value in other ways, like less pollution and, and less fewer uh, GHG emissions, all of that. And that really, it's the accelerating pace of technology change that will be driving this forward. And the metaphor that I use is that the energy transition is the bus, and the climate policy is the accelerator pedal. So you want the bus to go faster, you press harder on the accelerator pedal. What's, what's your take on that general view of technology driving the energy transition? So uh, obviously the technology uh, will be the main uh, driver, but also the perception change, I think very important. So we did a little bit of a research this year's uh, report and uh, showed that oil majors uh, are uh, also entering into electricity field quite fast. And uh, their electricity capacity, installed renewable capacity, mostly wind and solar, uh, and uh, also, uh, I will say, uh, contracted capacity, which means they are buying power from the renewable sources, will increase by eightfold. 
in just five years. So this is an important number that they are becoming not an oil company, but an energy company per se. So that's the first point. The second point is that technological disruption is uh, changing the way that uh, many companies see the world. For instance, you see that many oil retailers are entering into electric charging business uh, in, their, in, their, um, in their portfolio, uh, which is quite important. So I think, uh, and also many utilities are becoming energy service companies. So we see oil majors becoming energy companies, utilities becoming electricity service companies, which means combining two very important pieces of the transition. One is energy efficiency, the other one is renewables. So they combine these two and try to exploit the technology options uh, and making a business case out of it. This is happening today at a slower pace. I think I agree with you that this will uh, basically increase very fast uh, in order to make uh, the transition happen uh, faster and technology will be at the heart of this. One final question because I can't, I can't let you go without asking it. The, I've had experts over and over again and I think this is absolutely right. The 2020s is the decade when many of these technologies hit their inflection point on the S-curve and we're, for the combination of all of that, we are set for the 2020s to be the, the disruptive decade of the energy transition. We will see rapid disruptive change between now and 2030. In fact, we'll look back from 2030 on 2020 and marvel how much has changed in just 10 years. Would you agree with that? Agreed, 100%. No question. <laughs> Agreed, definitely. This is the 2020 to 2030 is critical for the energy transition change, 100%. Amy, thank you very much. This has been very enlightening. I really appreciate your insights and we'll look forward thank to you very much. again on here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.